How's everyone doing this morning? Doing good. So, man, I have a lot to say by way of introduction. Um, first of all, you picked a bad Sunday to come, all of you, because I'm going to talk on a subject none of you deal with. As a matter of fact, nobody has probably dealt with this since the thousands of years ago in which this ancient book was written. It deals with this thing called anxiety. I'm sure nobody is dealing with that right now. So in all seriousness, we're going to be talking about anxiety. It's not a proper topical study in the sense that we're going to survey everything the Bible has to say about it, but we are focusing on a text which its primary topic is anxiety. So we're going to be talking about anxiety, and I want to give you three keys to managing anxiety from this specific text. Now, just kind of the background of it as far as what it took for me to be here this morning. So I was supposed to share this message a week ago. Had I done so, it would not be the same message it's going to be today. It's changed. Um, so I was supposed to be here last week, and I think if you were here last week, you may have heard, um, I became a grandfather. So my oldest stepdaughter lives in Bakersfield, and she was due to give birth, you know, around the middle of the week, but as this, the nature of this thing, it's not like you can plan it on your planner, oh, it'll, you know, this baby will be born on Wednesday, precisely at 12 p.m., because I have a meeting to get to at 1. You know, it just doesn't work that way. Um, the baby was breech, and um, thank God we do live in a time where, you know, we can perform C-sections, and babies and moms can be healthy, um, but still, uh, my stepdaughter did, really did not want to have to go that route. It was just, to her, it meant a lot that that not happen, and so um, we had some people praying, our men's group prayed, and sure enough, literally hours before she was scheduled to go in, the baby turned. And so we got the call, that changes everything, it's no longer scheduled, now it could just be whenever, you know, she's, you'll be going in soon, and this and that. So we drove uh, up late Saturday and got up there, and then the baby was born, and I held my first grandson uh, last Sunday. Um, so, and then this week, it was interesting, because for the first time in a while, I, I was feeling a lot of anxiety. Um, I mean, and it's not like I haven't, it, it wasn't any particular new thing that happened. I mean, it, there's a lot of abiding stuff, you know, that subterranean stream of responsibility and, and, and maybe sorrow and fear and doubt, you know, just kind of running under there, but it's not on the surface and you just kind of deal with it and you don't really notice it's there until a new thing happens and then you're like, ah, you know, you're, you're blown up or you're melting down or, or whatever it is. So I, I actually felt it physiologically, just my heart rate was kind of up and, you know, just kind of anxious and not able to focus as much and, and I'm like well this this is kind of a bummer because I'm supposed to go teach everyone on anxiety and I have it you know you know what I mean like I actually I feel bad I feel bad I feel like I should be able to come here and be like hey everyone who struggles with anxiety uh, I don't you know I, I don't know what that's like and um, but I read a book about it you know and so let me help you people who have anxiety um, interestingly yeah I, I've had it kind of worse and then it was funny because I was having a hard time focusing, and so finally I shared it with my wife. I said, honey, like, I'm ha I don't know why I'm having the hardest time just focusing, and I just feel this anxiety, and she's like, I wish you would have told me earlier, and I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, I've been having anxiety this whole week, and if you would have told me you're teaching on anxiety this Sunday, I would have known why, you know what I mean? So it was just kind of funny how it all worked out. So we're going to be looking at just a few verses in Scripture. It's First Peter Chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, we'll have um, the passage up on the screen behind me. But we're going to look at this, we're going to break it down um, verse by verse. And what I want to arrive at through interpreting this passage is three keys to managing anxiety. Because it is something that everyone deals with at some level. We all deal with stress. We all deal with fear. To some degree, some people more than others, some people at certain times and handle it different ways, but, but we all deal with it. And any person, I don't care how strong you are, if you pile enough things on at one time, it, it'll break you, right? You know, people, uh, even strong people are breakable. You can get to a point where you're like, I can't, can't handle it anymore. I, I, I just can't. 
So regardless of whether you consider yourself an anxious person or a strong person or weak or whatever, we all do deal with this. And certainly we can find ourselves in seasons of life where we need help. We need help. And Scripture is a guide, a helper to us. And it points us to a God who cares about us. So if you have your Bibles, let's read now. 1 Peter 5, 5-7. This is God's Word. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray right now that we would know and sense Your presence. We pray that we would be willing to hear these words, not just as the words of a man or the words from a book, but words from the living God. And we pray that you would reveal things to us about ourselves and about our lives that either we didn't know or we refused to know. And we pray for wisdom. We pray you would teach us how to navigate the turbulent seas of life. We pray that we would allow whatever stress and anxiety we're going through not to break us, but to make us. To fashion us more into your image and to allow us to become the kinds of men and women that can help others. So we pray for a blessing now over this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so again, I've talked about how the Bible originally, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, didn't originally have number verses and chapter verses. Those were uh, put in later somewhere um, in the Middle Ages, and that was primarily done for referencing. So when you're reading the Bible critically, you're really examining it, particularly if you're going to teach anyone, you start to pay attention to things you wouldn't pay attention to otherwise. Um, you'll kind of find out there's times where they put a verse and it's kind of like, eh, that part really goes up here and this part goes down here. I think that's kind of what happened here. Um, if you're with us two weeks ago, we ended with verse 5, but I think verse 5, it has two sentences and it really should have been broken up. So the first part of verse 5 says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. And that was the closing statement of a section about leaders' responsibility, what it means to be a good leader. In, in any capacity, obviously, it, it, it's, it borrows a word from the synagogue and it uses it for the New Testament church that follows Jesus as their Messiah. So it borrows that word, and that's, that's an office, that's a function. But it also just talks about elders in, in, in a general sense, anyone who is leading someone else. And so it really ends that discussion. So I would say verse 5a, I call it, should be a part of what we've already discussed so the new part that ties into what we're talking about, the topic of anxiety and what to do about it, comes in in the second half of verse 5. And in the New King James, it says, Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another. Now, I don't do this all the time. It might bore you. You might not be interested. But it's a part of the modern world. We, don't, we have many translations. You go to a modern group Bible study, uh, even as we do in men's group, all the guys will open up their Bibles. Somebody's got a New King James. Somebody's got an ESV. Somebody's got an NASV. Somebody's got an NLT. And, and you have different translations. So I think, you know, whether you think that's good or bad or somewhere in between or the obvious, it's more complicated, I think it's helpful to point some things out, particularly if you're going to try to build a doctrine and say people ought to live by something. You do need to kind of know what's going on. So I do want to point out this phrase here, yes, all of you be submissive to one another, is omitted in the earliest manuscripts. So if you have a newer translation, ESV, NASB, NIV, that phrase does not appear there. It's not there, it's omitted. So that's the Codex Sinaiticus, which you can see, I saw it, uh, at the British Library in uh, London. 
uh, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Alexandrinus. It's not there. So it's in the majority text. It is not in the earliest manuscripts. I don't think it's a big deal for what we're talking about this morning, managing anxiety and what follows. It can become an issue when we're talking about leadership, authority, and submission because some people will use that verse to mitigate authority to anyone. They'll say, oh, well, it says submit to these authorities, but then this verse says, well, you're just submitting to everyone anyway, so you don't have to submit to anyone really. So again, be, be careful of that. If you're going to start building a teaching on it, and I've heard people do that, you need to deal with this textual variation. He goes on to say, and this really begins what the subject matter of this section is about, and he says, be clothed with humility. Now that Greek verb for clothed is what they call a hopox legomenon. That's Greek for only occurs once. Only one time do you see it in the entire New Testament. When a word occurs only one time, you kind of pay attention because you can't just assume necessarily what it means. You've got to do some digging around and make sure I understand what that word means. And the word means specifically to gird oneself with the towel of a slave. Be clothed with humility. Gird yourself with the towel of a slave. That's a very important nuance to the Greek, isn't it? Why? Because in the Christian memory, in the Christian community, in the New Testament, we have the record of eyewitnesses to the man Jesus of Nazareth. And one of the hallmarks of Jesus' ministry, it wasn't a miracle, interestingly. I think we all like miracles. We're looking for a miracle. But one of the hallmarks of Jesus and who he was, it was not a miracle, but it was a simply a symbolic act that Jesus did. And it's also when he did it. The night that the New Testament tells us Jesus was going to be betrayed by a friend who was a part of his inner circle, who he put in the seat of honor and loved him anyway to the very end, knowing he was going to betray him, but gave him every opportunity to do what was right. The story is that at Passover, at that last meal, Jesus stood up from the table. Remember, they're laying down and they're laying on their sides. Jesus stands up. And he goes off into the corner and he takes off his outer garment. And he picks up the towel of a slave. And, and remember, this idea of feet washing, even the average slave would not perform such a task. So this isn't even normal slave stuff. This is considered the lowest of the low. Jesus takes on the towel of a slave, girds himself in it, and then he gets down and he washes all of his disciples' feet. Peter, rightly, I think, he needs to be taught the way of Jesus, but rightly he says, no, not, not so, Lord. You can't do that. You, do you realize what you're doing? You're reducing yourself. You're better than that, Jesus, is essentially what Peter is saying. I think he's being polite. Peter's being polite. Don't lower yourself like that, Jesus. Only the lowest of the low would do that. Jesus does it anyway, and he said, if you do not let me wash your feet, you cannot be my disciple. Because what I'm doing is a model for how you are supposed to live your life. So, when Peter uses this word, it is pregnant with meaning for Peter. When he says, be clothed with humility, it's not just an abstract idea. It's a living reality. He saw it. I know a man who did this for me. And not only would that, that be a kind act if it were anyone, but I've come to believe that not only is he the Messiah, but that he is the I Am of Israel. Jesus said audacious things, and you have to be confronted with these statements as the people in the New Testament were. When Jesus said crazy things like, before Abraham was, I am. Modern readers are like, oh, whatever. You know, that's what I tell my wife when she tells me I need to change. I'm like, I am what I am, babe. You know, bada bing, I am what I am. That's not a big deal. He's not saying anything. Why is everybody so upset? Well, if you know the Old Testament, no wonder they picked up stones to throw at him. The fact that Jesus is who Peter says he was 
exalts Jesus to the highest possible status, which makes him lowering himself to the lowest possible status absolutely jump out at us. The Apostle Paul has his own way of talking about this in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which many believe is a hymn. It's actually a pre-Pauline hymn. goes back to the earliest traditions of Jesus. And it's a song about how Jesus, though he had every right to claim to his deity, was willing to let it go and humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And that's when Paul says, and for this reason, God has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is kurios, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This act of lowering oneself is a part of Jesus' identity. And then, Peter goes on to quote the Old Testament, specifically Proverbs 3.34. He says, For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So Peter takes Proverbs 3.34, and here in the Greek, the verbs are in the present tense, which means it's not like God does this once in a while, and you ought to do it once in a while. The present tense means God is always resisting the proud. That is His posture toward the proud. It's not a once in a while thing. Oh, you can let one slip by God. Oh, he'll be fine. Oh, he was tired. Oh, he's busy. He was preoccupied with this war over here. He didn't see that you were being proud or prideful. God is always, always, always resisting the proud. So we should see pride in us as an enemy to having an authentic relationship with God. Ultimately, deep down, though we all have our excuses, some could be the same as others, some could be very unique and different, but deep down, it's this thing of pride. We're resisting. I'm resisting God. I don't want to humble myself. I don't want to submit to that. The flip side of this is that God is constant. And that means you can count on Him to always be who He is. And that means he's always, always, always giving grace to the humble. Always. If you're humbling yourself, you never have to worry that God ran out of grace or he forgot about you or he missed you. Because this is what God does. He's always giving grace. It's who he is. Always giving grace to the humble. So this leads us to our first key to managing anxiety. Assume the perspective of a servant. Now you might ask, how does this help with my anxiety? Assume the perspective of a servant. And the answer is, you are changing your perspective. You are changing your focus. You are thinking differently. You are taking your focus off of yourself, which is one of the things when we're overwhelmed with anxiety, what we do, we begin to introspect. We begin to look in, and I don't just mean, I mean, self-evaluation inventory, that's good, not saying that's bad, but when we're so turned in, we cannot see the effect we're having on anyone. We're losing sight of the big picture. We had a vision and a purpose. We knew what we were put on this earth to do, and we're at a point where we're so turned in by our anxiety, we don't even care about that anymore. It's like, whatever. I'm just worried about getting through this day. I can't even think about accomplishing some big, great purpose. So this helps us because you're reorienting your perspective. Jesus told us to do this, and it's a popular verse. Many Christians know it. Matthew 6, uh, 6.33. But a lot of people don't make the connection to anxiety. So you probably, have, many of you have the verse memorized. Matthew 6.33, what is it? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I've known that one since I'm a kid, right? What I didn't think about was that verse in light of what he said before, which is the opposite of seeking his kingdom. Listen to this. See if it sounds familiar. He says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry, same word as in 1 Peter, 
Do not worry about your life. Do not be anxious, full of anxiety about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which one of you, by worrying, being full of anxiety, giving into it, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry. Be anxious. Saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. That's what those who don't know God do. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So what Peter tells us to do when we're experiencing anxiety, one of the things we're probably doing if we're overwhelmed with it, is that that's all we're thinking about. We're starting to trade in what makes life worth living simply for things that pertain to life. I'm worried about what I'm going to get, right? What I'm going to eat and paying my bills. It makes all the sense in the world. Don't get me wrong. Think about it too. But is that why I'm alive? To pay my bills? To clock in? To clock out? Drive here, drive there? Die? Is that the meaning of my life? Is that the purpose of my life? No. Those are things that pertain to life, but they're not the meaning of your life. And so what we need to do is reorient ourselves and remind ourselves of why we're alive in the first place. He who does not know why he is alive is dead even while he lives. We need to know why we're alive. You need to know what your purpose is. And Jesus says if you're a follower of Him, your purpose is the kingdom of God. That means your focus, you need to retrain yourself. Your mind, your habits, the things that you do, you need to retrain yourself to put the kingdom first. That's what's number one. And the irony is we panic when these other things are threatened. So we let go of the kingdom vision and we focus on these things, and the irony is it doesn't help, it makes it worse. Because now we're preoccupied with them. They've become number one. So by assuming the perspective of a servant, because a servant is focused on others and being kingdom-minded, we redirect what would otherwise be a hindering or even for some paralyzing self-focus. And we change that into energy for mission. Look at verse 6. Peter then says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. Now, a number of translations, the New King James included, translate the Greek verb here to humble as a reflexive verb, meaning humble yourselves, something you should do. But the verb is clearly not, I'm 100% certain, it is not a reflexive but a passive. In other words, it should be translated, if you were being literal, be humbled. Why does that matter? The difference is that the reflexive would indicate something you and I choose that we're in control of. Whereas the latter refers to something that has chosen us. That's a big difference. 
Now, it's not wrong to say humble yourselves. Sure, you should humble yourselves. The Bible does say that many other times. But that assumes you're in a place of some kind of control, some kind of power, right? That I'm even in the position to decide whether I won't be humbled or not. Do you see that? That requires power. Peter's not talking about that circumstance. Peter is talking about what do you do when you have fought tooth and nail to avoid being humbled in this way, and yet humility has found you. What do you do about that? Well, Peter begins, he says, be humbled. Allow it to happen. Stop fighting it. You you hate your status. You've been lowered. You've been put down. Someone's not recognizing your worth or your value. People maybe don't look at you. You're as important as you used to be. You're not as needed as you used to be. You're not as gifted as you used to be. You're not as successful as you used to be. You're being lowered and you feel it. And you want to fight tooth and nail to make sure you can reverse that circumstance. What Peter is talking about is, okay, what happens when you've done that? And there's nothing you can do to change it. You are being humbled and you have no say except whether you will accept it in your life as something God can use or whether you are going to continue to spend all your energy fighting it as though it were an enemy. Now the result, Peter says of this, is that if we accept our humbling circumstances, you recognize that's where I am. I remember a time where, you know, I think we all have different theologies or understanding of God's provision, don't we? God will provide. What does that mean? Does it mean God provides what you want, when you want, how you want it? Well, I can tell you that has not been the case for me. Now, I will say, I had a particular theology. I think it was sort of passed on to me. I've since changed. I I think I'm more biblical now. But even in Christian circles, I heard, you know, God will test you. God will wait up till the last minute. But at the last minute, you know, He'll stress you out. You know, He'll allow you to be tested. But right before the stroke of midnight, that check will come in the mail. That bill will get paid. It all will work out. And that, did, and that did happen for me for a long time. God would put me through difficult seasons, but no, I was always there. And, and I had my pride. I also believed as a Christian, I, I want to be someone who always paid my bills. Like it was kind of an honor thing. Kind of from the Bible, but just cultural as well. I want to be honorable. I want to pay my bills. I want to say, I always pay my bills on time. And I remember being close to midnight many times and God providing, and it seemed to support that narrative. God will provide, but at the last minute. And then the day came when a very large rent payment for a very nice church building was due. And the last minute before midnight came. And my theology is God will provide that full amount by midnight. No check. I remember going in after that weekend, walking from the church building to the office building, the realtor's office, with a check in my hand for half the amount. Half the amount. I was humble. This has never happened to me before. I've never... And I felt guilty. I knew I did everything I could do. But I felt guilty. I'm... I've always been able to do this. You know, I've always been able to say last minute. And then I was worried, oh, my Christian witness, oh, they'll think, oh, Christians are this way and they don't pay their bills and they just take advantage of it or whatever because, of course, there are, there's some that do that. So please don't do that. Um, but it was, I did everything I could to do things the right way. And I had to hand them that check. And I honestly, from the bottom of my heart, said, I am so, so sorry. I cannot give you everything I owe. I said, that's fine. Get a lawyer. That was the response. Kind of took a breath and was like, okay. Walked away. Let things kind of roll. It was a hectic time, full of anxiety, not a lot of sleep, all that. 
inevitably, God miraculously, not in the way I wanted, and he, I, think, I think years got taken off my life, to be honest. Um, but finally, we got out of that lease, and we moved here. But I learned something very important that day. That not everything is under your control. That God will humble you at seasons in life where you did not choose it, nor would you. That God is perfectly capable of defending His own honor, His own integrity. It's not as though, oh, I'm depending on Mike, or you know, people know God is perfectly or something like that. It's, honestly, it's always been a ridiculous thought, but I think sometimes we feel that way. If I stumble, then, well, gosh, I guess Jesus isn't who He said He was. God came through, but after midnight. But God's provision was such that He moved us from a place He didn't want us to be to a place I never would have gone had He not allowed things to work that way. So there's actually a journey involved with God's providence. There's many times where people never would move from one place to another had they not been forced to do so. It says that if we will accept our humbling circumstances, God will exalt you. That means He will be the one to lift you up. You won't have to worry about picking yourself up and regaining my status and my honor and my dignity. I'm going to be... No. You just be humbled under the mighty hand of God. Trust His sovereignty and His providence and He will be the one to lift you up. And when God lifts you up, there is a strength and a power and a faith that grows never before possible if you just picked yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's kind of the you know, the American image, the self-made man, pick myself up from my own bootstraps. You know, I used to hike through the snow, you know, to get two gallons of milk, and I did that. You know, it's like we, we're just, we have all these stories. Well, what happens when you can't do that? Are you less of a man, less of a woman, less of a, a believer? I don't think so. So we can be humbled, and God will lift us up. Now, there's one more important thing to point out even here with God lifting you up. So when you're humbled and you go, okay, tried to get up. I recognize God's humbling me. Okay, I'm humble. I'm ready to be picked up. Like it'll happen right now, right? Because I, I accepted it. I'm humble, just like the pastor said. So I'm going to go home. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get down and be like, okay, I'm humbled. Lift me up. Exalt me. I'm ready to be exalted. Listen to what Peter says. He said, God in His power will lift you up in due season. En Cairo, which means at just the right time. It doesn't mean when you accept your humble position, then immediately as an automatic response, you'll be picked up. No. En Cairo. I've talked about this word kairos before. I've talked about the ordinary word for time, chronos. That's just time. Time ticking away on your watch. One second indistinguishable for another. And then there's kairos, those divine appointments, those openings, those opportunities you could not have created for yourself in just the right time. There's a timing for your lifting up. It's not for us, when we're in it, you, I don't care about like some perfect time, just pick me up now. Now is the perfect time. Usually is, isn't it? Now is the perfect time. For God now is not the perfect time. Many times. But at exactly the right moment, when everything you're not even aware of that's going on behind the scenes, that's going on on the other side of the world, that's going on with other people you don't even know about, with situations, with finances, with governments, and things you have no clue whatsoever about. And when God gets you to the place He wants you to go, because you won't get there any other way than at Cairo, the right time. Then at that exact moment, boom, not a second earlier, not a second later, He will lift you up. That's what that in due season means. There is a perfect, I can say this theologically, there is a perfect time. It's not about good. 
It's not about better. It's best. Perfect time. Accepting our humble status does not force God into our timetable, but rather Peter says that if we accept our humble status at just the right time, when it matters most, God will lift us up. And this is key number two. Learn to accept your humble circumstances. This is much easier said than done. I I know that. I know that personally. Because we have actually worked very hard in our lives to ensure the opposite outcome. Think about it. This is a reverse, of course, of life for all of us, isn't it? A reverse in your curriculum vitae. We do everything we do so that we don't end up in a place like this. So learning to accept it, understand if this feels hard, it's because you're not on a little ski boat. You're, you're on an aircraft carrier trying to spin it around or something. You know what I mean? It's like my grandpa's old Ford LTD that had a 400 cubic inch big block and you know, we called it the boat. You know, when you hit a speed bump, it just goes bloop, bloop. <laughs> You know, you like barely feel it. It's like 80 feet long. It's as long as a trailer. And to, if you ever have to flip a U in that thing, the old steering, big old steering wheel, it's like, no. You know, like everyone in the intersection just needs to stop. Well, I like, you know, do a six-point turn or something like that. It's just just to make a U-turn. Don't be surprised if that's how it feels with accepting accepting your humble circumstances. Because we've been doing certain things a certain way for so long. I think this goes for all of us, to be honest. We've been trying to do what we can do so that we are not in a humble circumstance. So learning to accept it is very difficult. You may feel a sense of powerlessness because try as you might, certain things don't go your way. And the problem is not just that things aren't going your way, but our refusal to accept it and the amount of worry we devote to the fact that our humble situation begins to create a debilitating anxiety. So it's not even just the thing itself, but we're wrestling with the fact we can't control the thing, whatever that might be. So what Peter is saying to us is stop spending all of your energy focusing on the fact of your humble circumstances and rather accept your humble status as coming to you from the mighty hand of God's providence. Because when the time is right, He will lift you up. One of the great stories of the Bible that came to me when I was reading this passage that illustrates this perfectly, and I encourage you, if you're wrestling with this in any way, read this story when you leave. It's the story of Joseph in Genesis. Do you remember the story of Joseph? Did Joseph have humble circumstances? I think being betrayed by a family member, how does that feel? Probably one of the worst feelings I think you can have, being betrayed by somebody you love. Not just being betrayed, but being sold into slavery, almost killed, right? I mean, that's how much they, they hated you. People you love, they hate you that much. And then you end up a slave, right? Then you get falsely accused of rape. Falsely accused of rape. Ends up in prison. And here's the scene that I was thinking about in particular. Do you remember when there was the baker and the chief cupbearer? And they both had dreams. And they didn't know what they were. Joseph just happens to be there. Who can interpret dreams? That's like his gig. He interprets their dreams. And he's right about the dreams. And Joseph says to them, now he says to the cupbearer, because he's not going to die. He's going to get restored to his position right next to Pharaoh. Remember me when you go up there. What happened? He forgot him. For how long? A day? A month? Six months? Two years. Chapter 41, Genesis. Two years. It seems like God's not in control. Things are, he's like, what? 
I've been in prison for two years because a guy forgot. Like, how dumb and random is that? That's not even some noble thing. Oh, they're keeping me in prison because, you know, they, they thought I was a threat to the entire kingdom. Oh, I understand why you're imprisoning me. I'm pretty powerful. Yeah, you should probably should keep me locked up. No, he forgot. He forgot. But two years comes, and it's right when Pharaoh has a dream, and that's when he's restored. That is in due season. And Cairo, there was a perfect time for Joseph to be restored. Not sooner and not later. There was a perfect time for him. And it took all the way to the end for Joseph to finally just, I think when he broke down in tears, yeah, it was seeing his family, but I, it, was, it was clearly being overwhelmed with God's timing and seeing all the loose ends finally coming together. And we know that that's why he was crying. Because he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Joseph's weeping. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy. I prayed for family relationships that went bad and I got those. Those are amazing. Thankful. But what's even more amazing is coming to see the one who has always been faithful and who has never betrayed me, who was with me every step of the way, even when I didn't see that he was there. And to come across one of those moments in life, one of those Kairos moments, when you see it all just making sense and it all coming together. Peter ends with verse 7. He says, Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Here I would actually say the New King James gets it better than a number of other modern translations. The participle casting has been rendered as a command. So if you have the NIV, it, it has a separate sentence and it says, cast your cares, command. No, it's actually not. And I'll show you why that actually matters. By keeping it a participle, which it is, we avoid thinking it's a separate command from the command that went before. Namely, accept your humble circumstances. In other words, Casting all your cares on Him is how you be humbled. It's how you humble yourself. Do you see that? It's not a separate command. If you ask yourself, okay, well, uh, humbling. Okay, well, in worship, I would maybe know how to do that. That's a you know, physical posture of bowing, right? That's it's a sign of humility. But what is, uh, how do I humble myself, though? With respect to anxiety, I don't get it. Well, by keeping the participle, he's telling us exactly how. By casting all of your anxiety on Him, you are being humble. What's the flip side of that? If you're not casting all your anxieties on Him, what are you? Proud. You are the opposite of humble. How much do you think about that? that I am being proud and arrogant, spiritually speaking, when I cast all my anxieties on other people, when I seek to just numb it however way I can, whether legal or illegal or whatever, when I don't cast all my anxieties on Him, I'm being proud. This is very, very important for your spiritual life. If you want to be humble, one of the most basic steps you can take in the world is learning to go to God first. Who is first? For some of you, God may not even be in the equation. You don't cast anything on God. Maybe a Hail Mary at the end of the game, you know what I mean? Like you'll, if you've done everything in the world you can possibly do it and it doesn't work, eh, throwing up the old God, see what he's up to, you know what I mean? For others, though, maybe prayer is a part of your life. But you don't go to Him first. And perhaps, and I've done this, and I've had, you know, my wife's done it to me, I've done it to her, to be honest with you. I've cast all my anxieties onto her. She's cast all her anxieties onto me. Think about the logic of that for a moment. Let's get this straight. You've got so much anxiety, you can't handle it, right? So you think it helps to put it on someone else, that which you can't handle, in addition to what they already have. 
because I don't know anyone who's not already stressed or has anxiety. And again, some more, some less, right? So imagine that. If we don't go to God with all our anxiety, we've got to go somewhere else or do something with it. So I find when God's not first and my life is not first, what happens is I go to someone else first. And I'm putting all of my burdens on them and it crushes them. This can happen in any, any kind of relationship, but I've seen it in marriages in particular. You know, you, you love each other, and even though you said, oh yeah, baby, I'm in this for you, I love you, I'd do anything for you, but deep down the sub-narrative the sub is, I want you to make my life better and make all my dreams come true. I mean, honestly, that, that's, that's kind of what it is. Let's, let's be honest. Oh yeah, I just want to serve even Christians. We'll, we'll totally lie you know, at, at our weddings. Like, oh baby, you know how the Bible says Jesus washed the disciples' feet? That's really all I want to do. I, I, don't, I don't want sex. I don't want, you know, uh, uh, kids. I don't want all this stuff. I don't want you to bear all my problems and share your 401k. I don't want any of that. I just want to wash your feet. And then after the honeymoon's over, it's like, I got problems. You know, it's like, I've been doing this secretly and I've been doing that. Oh, by the way, did I ever tell you I loathe when you do this? You know, and you start putting it on the person. And they're like, oh my gosh, wait a minute. I married you to get rid of all my stuff. I thought I'd have less anxiety. You're giving me more. What am I doing here? I know it's funny, but it's like sad. We should all cry. But this is what we do when we don't listen to what Peter said. And that's something that I've learned over time. It's not that I can't share things with my wife. I can. But I've learned and I'm practicing not sharing them with her first. If I'm overwhelmed, I'm discouraged, I'm dismayed, I'm just like, oh, I can't do this anymore. If I go take that right to her, I'm going to crush her. And she's a strong woman. It's one of the reasons I married her. She's a strong woman. And nobody can handle that. Nobody can handle that. And I've learned that when I go to God first in prayer, and I'm like, God, sometimes it helps to literally write it out, by the way. Write out everything that's causing you anxiety. This isn't working out. This person did this. I don't feel this. This is never going to change. This happened in the past and it's ruining my life. Whatever it is, you write it all down. Be like, God, I'm giving this to you. I'm giving this to you. I need you to take this. I'm being responsible. I'm not stuffing and denying. I'm giving it over to you. And after I've done that, I find there is a burden lifted. It's not gone, but it's lifted. Now I'm able to see more clearly what is to be shared, what, what I want to share with my wife for the sake of our relationship. A lighter load that can be handled in love, mutual love, mutual burden bearing together. I'll be able to give her some of that to carry. If she goes to God first, she'll give me a little bit to carry but we will not put all the burden of our happiness and provision and hope and doubt and fear on another fragile, finite, sinful human being. We will put it on the living God. This literally changes lives. This, like I said, I pick out marriage. This can happen to you know, mother-in-laws. It can happen to father-in-laws. It can happen to your <clears throat> children, your grandchildren, business partners anyone if you go to them first with all your sadness your anger your rage your frustration you can crush them so peter tells us go to god first casting all of our cares on him and now here's this is huge this is the big takeaway for this morning for me i hope it is for you Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. The Bible just said God cares about you. Should God care? What if we're just a random accident? There's no God. None of this should happen anyway. Not supposed to be here. 
just an accidental speck in a corner of the universe, random chance, no meaning, no purpose, no one in the universe to care about you. You can say life is about love and this and that, but it's not really true. You just made that up. Because love didn't birth it, if that's what you believe. But the Bible teaches that God birthed the world out of love. God cares for you. The God of the universe cares for you. He loves you. He is concerned about you. He knows about you. He's not forgotten about you. And he is inviting you because he cares. It's not because he needs it. He cares about you. And like a father to his son or daughter, it says, honey, let me help you with that. I love you. Many of you know my dad passed away of cancer in 2003. But he was a good man, and he was a great dad. And I remember I was a teenager, and I was in love. Dated a girl for five years. Talked about getting married, all that stuff. And we broke up. And it was very, very hard. I was devastated. I had it coming, but <laughs> I was devastated nonetheless. And I remember being in the kitchen of our house in Sonoma, California, bawling my eyes out. My dad came up to me, and dad was a big guy, big Harley riding guy, came up to me, put his arms around me, and I'll never forget his words. Son, I wish I could take it for you. And even though he couldn't take it all for me, those words meant the world to me. That's what God is saying for you. Son, daughter, I want to take this for you. But where my dad was limited, Jesus is not. The story of the cross, the Christian interpretation of the cross is in the cross. God says, I have taken it all on you. The curse of the law, because of your breaking it, your sin, your rebellion, your brokenness, Jesus is taking it all on Himself. And when Jesus cries out on the cross to Telestai, it's paid in full. It is accomplished. It's done. That's Jesus saying, son or daughter, I have taken it on. That's how much God loves us. So when we hear this invitation, He cares for you, that's how much He cares. Somebody can say, I care about you, but maybe they don't come through. Or their version of care is not very caring. You have that, someone's like, I'm going to care for you. I've seen nurses, right? You know, there's some wonderful nurses, amazing. And then saw some ones that were like abrasive and like, you know, jamming the needle in. You're like, good grief, just do it myself. You know, just you know, being like horrible or whatever. And it's like, oh, you're really caring. You're really nursing us. You know what I mean? So how do you know God cares about you? And that's when Christians say, if you want to know how much God cares about you, you look at Jesus. Growing up on, on the wall in my house when I was a little boy, there was a little plaque, and it said, I asked Jesus, how much do you love me? And it said, and Jesus said, this much. And he stretched out his arms and died. If you want to know, not just that God cares, but how much he cares, what is he willing to do for you? Does he personally risk anything being in a relationship with you? Does he take on any pain, any suffering, any sorrow? Or is he distant, just going, oh, that sucks. I'll help you out later. That's a bummer. Glad it's not me. Maybe I'll help you, but I don't feel it. In Jesus, we see that God loves us that much. So our last key, number three, is hand over your anxieties, your worries, and your cares to God in prayer. As I said, this is often harder than it seems because I, my natural thing, to be honest, and this takes discipline, is I want to transfer it to people I can see. Honestly. 
If I have anxiety, I, I want to tell my wife. That's, a lot of times that's the first thing. Honey, this bad thing happened. Or tell someone else, oh, man, re- get my phone out. Oh, I got to text someone. Oh, this, you know, bad thing happened. Or, or, or maybe it's like, oh, you know, I need to go exercise. You know, that's, that's not bad. Or I'm going to eat. <laughs> I'm going to eat a big burger, you know, like just trying to numb a little bit of the pain. Honestly, man, that's, that's not illegal. That's not bad. No one's going to say anything about it, but that's why I'm doing it. I'm just going to try to, like, numb the stress and anxiety that I have. Remember, it's not just about whether a particular response to anxiety is bad or not. It's a valid question, but that's not the point here. The point is, where do we go first? And what Peter is saying is we need to learn to go to God first. Anything less is robbing God of his glory as the one who cares for us. God wants to know why we're not casting our cares on him. His shoulders are able to handle whatever you've got. The shoulder of your spouse, your son, your daughter, your father, your mother can't handle everything you have to give them. They can't handle it. We need to go to the God who cares for us. And I'd say our guidebook to doing this is the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms, we have a divinely inspired record of people who did what I'm talking about. There's a number of writers in the Psalms, of course, but one of the prominent ones is David. And what you see there is David pouring out his heart, isn't he? And you know he's pouring out his heart because some of the stuff, he shouldn't be saying it. Right? Oh Lord, break their teeth in their mouth. Let them dissolve into the slime under the heat of the day that will never again know the feel of the sun. Uh, Anything else you'd like to say? But what David is doing, it's, and I, I heard a scholar say this once, and I think he was right. Some people read some of the Psalms and go, gosh, I I don't know that you should feel that way. The point is not whether you should feel that way. Let's agree, yeah, maybe you shouldn't. But what do you do when you do? You give it to God. If you've got feelings of revenge, if you've got feelings of anger, if you're just raging, instead of taking it out on someone else, you give it to God. The feeling of injustice, if you've had that happen, you've been wronged and, and no, puni- no discipline, punishment, or any kind of justice is getting done. And there's rage built up, in a sense, rightly. But that rage, what does that do to you? It destroys you. The psalmist says, give it to God. God says, I will handle it. I will decide what needs to be done and when it needs to be done. You leave that to me. These kinds of things we we bottle up so much. We hurt our relationships and it goes out into other areas of our life where we did not anticipate. All because we're not coming to God with what concerns us. In closing, as the Apostle Paul said famously in Philippians 4, 6-7, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace, the shalom of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ the Messiah, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we just thank You so much for the gift of your love. We thank you for the gift of your presence. We thank you for the invitation to take our our worries and our cares, our fears, our anxieties, and to give them over to you. So Lord, this morning I, I believe that there are those here this morning that they don't just have anxiety, some stress, but that are being consumed by it. They're being overwhelmed by it. And I would just pray right now that you would meet them where they are. 
and that you would let them know this message is for them. That you care about what they're caring about, what they're worried about. And I pray you would enable them to take this step of casting their cares on you because you care for them. Help us each to do this this week. Help us to do this on behalf of others. Let us take the cares and burdens of others to you in prayer on their behalf. I pray that we would live a new kind of life this week. I pray that our kingdom vision, if it's been diminished, if we've been looking down at the ground instead of out ahead of what you, what you have for us, about our mission, our purpose, if we're worried about staying alive when we should be concerned about what makes life worth living, Lord, help us to get our eyes back on what matters most. And I do pray for provision. I pray for relief. I pray through a breakthrough. I pray for change. And I pray for healing for all of us here this morning. And I pray we would take whatever you've given us and that we too, like Jesus, would gird ourselves with the towel of humility and that we would go out and serve and meet the needs of others. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.